If you are a startup looking to grow in Cambridge, the Bradfield Centre offers a range of flexible membership packages which put you in control of your office and home working mix. There's a vibrant, collaborative atmosphere, on-site cafe, plenty of green outside space and regular member social events. For more information, visit bradfieldcentre.com or call 01223 919 600. Welcome to the Cambridge Tech Podcast, talking all things technology from the heart of the UK's tech capital. Here are your hosts, Faye Holland and James Parton. Hi, I'm Faye. And I'm James. I'm really excited about today's conversation with Stratospheric Platforms. Talk about a company solving hard problems. Unmanned hydrogen-powered flying 5G base stations. They're combining aerospace engineering, software, logistics, cellular connectivity, and they're just about to raise their Series B. So let's get started. Hi, Neil. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks today. for having me. It's our pleasure. Um, so we actually mentioned you in the news item a few episodes ago, which is kind of funny, but here you are. So would you tell us what Stratospheric Platforms is all about? I will. So actually, yes, a friend put me on to the fact that you'd mentioned me in the news and then I picked up the podcast and I've listened to several episodes now and I'm a bit of a fan. Bravo. <laughs> yes. Uh, and then thought maybe we should we should talk to you about what we're doing. So Stratospheric Platforms Limited is a company founded in Cambridge. We're based in Granter Park, founded in 2014. First funding was 2016. And we are aiming to provide stratospheric communications. So that is essentially 20 kilometer high mobile phone telephony direct to your to your mobile phone device. So it's basically a flying 5G tower. It's exactly a flying 5G tower. That's, okay. that's precisely it. And how, how big is one of those? The aircraft itself is scheduled to be a 58 meter wingspan aircraft, composite made, four meter body diameter, 32 meters long. It's quite a big thing. Think of a 787. That's the sort of size of aircraft that we're looking at. Yeah, so I actually had to work out how big 58 metres was, and it's it's almost the side of a football pitch. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they're, they're huge, which is why they're stratospheric. You know, that's, I guess, the whole point. Yeah, so if you think about the sort of planes that you see at those altitudes, they have very long, thin wings. So it's essentially a giant powered glider. We dig into the, then kind of how this flying 5G tower works. Does it handle both voice and data connections? Yep. So the way the way that it operates is just the same way that any terrestrial network operates. But, uh, you know, it, it bears repeating, all we're doing is putting the terrestrial network 20 kilometres high. So the connectivity to the device, it could be an Internet of Things device, an autonomous car, your phone, your house, could be broadband direct to your premises, fixed wireless access, we call it. That is connected to the aircraft, and then from the aircraft, it's connected to the ground, just the same way that a terrestrial network is. Yeah. You connect to the top of a mobile phone mast that you can see from your house, maybe, and then there's a cable that runs down that mast and back to the core network. It works in exactly the same way. 
The only difference is, of course, we've got aeroplanes to deliver it. So that's quite a different thing to the concrete and steel of a mobile phone mast. We're now talking about composite aircraft manufacture and, of course, flying aircraft, landing them, refueling them, training pilots, maintenance, repair and overhaul, ground handling, all the things that you would expect in, in operating aircraft that you would never imagine you would need to do to operate a telecoms network. So you're launching a telecoms network and an airline at the same time. <laughs> you, you could say that. In fact, we do use the airline analogy sometimes because it helps with some of the visual images you need to create about where does the supply chain work. So, so why do we need it then? What, is, it, is the current infrastructure not good enough? Is it, is it not planned to be good enough? There's, there's two we's here. There's the we, which is what we're familiar with. Like, so the regulator will tell you that so many percent, 95 say, percent of the population is connected. But everybody's real world experience is, is not spots. You're driving and your phone drops out or you pull your phone out at the supermarket for something trivial, but it doesn't work and now it seems important. That is trivial, but there are really important reasons why an economy thrives on having 100% connectivity to 100% of the population 100% of the time, ubiquitous connectivity. That's the one we, and what this will do is fill that in, right? So just imagine all of the terrestrial towers on the ground at the moment augmented by an overarching load of additional towers from the stratosphere. Is that like literally seamless for the user perspective? Correct, like, yeah. So it just presents itself as O2 or Vodafone and you won't know where you're connected. It will just work. That's entirely right. right. So we knew that to, to enter into something as big as the telco scene, right, you need to make sure you're as frictionless as possible. So the technology has been invented to make sure that as far as the network operator is concerned, totally transparent. So the, the connectivity to the regular towers and the connectivity to the tower that happens to be in an aircraft is totally transparent to the network. Gotcha. I was getting on to the second we, Faye, which is we on planet Earth. Half the people on this planet still have no connectivity at all. And the cost to get connectivity to those people, to any people, in fact, is, is mind-numbing. It's, it's billions of dollars, pounds, euros to put fibers to a long way out into a place to then build the towers that you plug into the fiber that you then connect the people. What this does is leapfrog that infrastructure build. And we think we can bring a really good solution to a large area of the planet and help a lot of people who are not connected. And the reason why people need to be connected isn't for the thing I mentioned in the supermarket, do we need eggs? That's not what you need connectivity for. You need it for education, for healthcare, you need it for a thriving economy. And so that's why connectivity is super important. It's kind of bizarre that we're still having the conversation about not spots. And, you know, we talk about ubiquitous connectivity, but actually it doesn't exist everywhere. You know, in the towns and cities, then yes, but all the bits in between. And I guess this is going to plug all of those gaps. Yeah. In fact, the government have just put out a paper, which is the Wireless Infrastructure Strategy, which has come out of DSIT. And it talks about how are we accurately going to know who's connected and who isn't. Because there are blanket figures that say 95% of rural population or whatever the number is. But we don't really know that. So knowing the scale of the problem is, is an important part of this. So going back to the technology side of things for a second, you know, there's some, some questions around, I guess, alternatives. You know, so satellite internet has been around for a while. 
Elon Musk obviously has Starlink, which is making you know some marketing waves around. What are the benefits or differences between satellite technologies versus your technology? That's a really interesting question, and we get it all the time. So you're quite perceptive there, James. Um, it's not about alternatives; it's about complementaries, right? These things play in different areas in just the same way that a terrestrial network is very different from your fixed line to your house, mm. is very different from a satellite over your head, is very different from a high altitude platform. They're called a HAP. So with a satellite, of course, it's a long, long way away, thousand kilometers. There are claims made that a mobile phone will be able to connect to a satellite and that everything will be fine. That is not true. It, your mobile phone simply doesn't have enough power to be able to connect directly to a satellite, maybe for a very low data rate emergency signal, but nothing that's, that's usable. Satellites do have great utility. They've got a massive data rate, but it's over a super large area. A high altitude platform, however, is much closer. It's 20 kilometers away from you rather than 1,000 kilometers away. So typically, it's twice as far as today to a, to a 3G or 4G antenna. Oh. So it's going to be, it, it's a different use case. And like latency would be superior to, say, a satellite kind of solution? That's right, yeah. So latency is exactly the same as you have on a terrestrial network. It's less than a millisecond or low milliseconds. So we joked earlier about launching an airline. These planes fly above commercial traffic, though, I believe? That's right, yeah. In fact, they fly with commercial traffic until they get above it. So there's an important thing there because telecoms companies don't have to think about running an airline. In fact, they still won't have to think about it because somebody else will do it and just provide the service. The, the aircraft itself has to be certified for flight in regular airspace, and that's through through people that everyone's heard of, like the Civil Aviation Authority, or in the, in the US, it'd be the FAA, or in Europe, it's the ARSA. And right from the beginning of the journey, we engaged with those guys so that we would know that by the time the aircraft is flying, it will be certified for flight in, we call it, non-segregated airspace. So it will fly within regular traffic until it gets above that traffic and then take up its position where it will station hold and then provide the signal to the user devices. So how many, if we're, if we're looking at covering the whole of the UK, um, which I guess is your first target, uh, how many of these unmanned vehicles will there be up there? That's a good question. And it's the one that everybody wants to know about the UK because we're a UK company, right? Based here in Cambridge. So um, BT did some modelling for us on this one. And we call the area underneath an aircraft an illuminated area. It's it's like a cell phone area, but it's it's chopped into many, many individual cells, 450 to 500, in fact. An illuminated area under each aircraft, they would re require 24 for the whole of the UK. So to give you an idea, one illuminated area is about the size of Yorkshire. Uh, and those 24 aircraft, you do re require more than 24 because astute listeners will have noticed that I said six days earlier and that means it's got to come back and refuel. So you need another aircraft to go and take its place. And that's all orchestrated very simply. I said very simply, <laughs> the, the maths is simple, but uh, we'll see when we come to operate it. And of course you've got maintenance, repair, upgrade, uh, so there will be slightly more than 24 aircraft needed, but that's the sort of scale. Now compare that to the number of mobile phone towers that currently exist in the UK today, tens of thousands. And for 5G, where the frequency is much higher and the propagation much lower, 
you need those towers closer together. Could be as close as 2,000 metres apart. And you're never going to achieve that across the United Kingdom. So 24 of these versus hundreds of thousands of towers, I know where my money's going. Yeah. So we talk about net zero, uh, you know, an awful loss at the moment as well. There must be an implication. This must be, I mean, obviously there's the cost of setting it all up and making it happen. But when it's up and running, it must have environmental and cost benefits on putting big masts up and digging roads up. Absolutely. Yeah. And on both of those. So on the cost benefit, we think, and these numbers have been backed up for us by telecom operators, that it's 70% cheaper to do it this way because of those numbers that I've talked about. And that doesn't even count paying the rent on the land that you need to stand your mobile phone mast on, which is an eye-watering amount of money, actually. Um, and the environmental stuff, first of all, you need a lot less energy per bit of data that you transmit because you're lighting from above, if you like. Think of the the HAP as being the sunshine provided down on the ground to everybody rather than a beacon like a lighthouse, which is what we currently have, where the light has to shoot sideways, the RF shoots sideways out to the users. You need far more power to get through buildings and trees and ground effect, whereas lighting from above or RF from above, it's a lot less power per bit. It's about 90% less power. And that remaining 10% is green because it's hydrogen which you can make out of, well, there's lots of hydrogen people listening to this, I'm sure, but we always say sunlight and seawater. So, I mean, this is fascinating, and the way you're explaining it kind of is making me think, why hasn't anyone done this before? But are your first movers in this space? There are other movers in the space, actually. So there, if, if you care to check out high-altitude platforms, you'll find that there are, there are other movers. There's some experimental aircraft in the space. We're the first movers of a solution that's got the required energy. So, and that all comes from the hydrogen. Uh, folks might know or be interested to know that liquid hydrogen has got three times the calorific value of jet aviation fuel. It's an incredible fuel source. It's just very difficult to handle. But we've got some very, very clever people in this city who know how to handle liquid hydrogen. So that's what we're doing. It's the energy that comes from liquid hydrogen that gives us that, if you like, first mover advantage. Let's call it the second mover advantage. Having that amount of energy in use in the stratosphere, producing only water, by the way, is, is a, like a great power amplifier. And the hydrogen solution has that power amplification ability, whereas this is not a, a, a competition here, but whereas solar does not. There are solar aircraft that can do this, and there are ones that are flying. But the power that, that are, that's available in that aircraft is a lot lower, so it's a completely different use case. There'll be, there'll be places at this table for everybody. The, the stratosphere is a very underutilised part of our environment. Oh, that was going to be my next question. So, you know, resources on the ground are obviously in demand, whether it's for housing or green spaces and everything else. So it kind of makes sense to put it high, but isn't everyone going to come up with solutions that go up there? And then have we got very busy roads up there? That's a really good question. Think about a sphere the size of the Earth and then think about a sphere the size of the stratosphere. They're approximately the same size. The number of aircraft that you would need, like, for example, we spoke about 24 just for the UK. It's not going to be anywhere like as crowded as the ground. And, of course, you've got vertical separation as well. So... At the moment, it's empty. 
space isn't even empty, is it? We all hear about space junk. Um, yeah. well, at the moment, the, the stratosphere is is a a, a part of our um, available environment that hasn't been used for for anything really, weather balloons and the occasional, yeah. let's say, spy plane, but actually for civilian use for telecoms communication, it's it's a perfect, literally a blue sky. Uh, opportunity. Nice, I like that. Um, so, uh, do you have quite a job? I mean, it's, it's really interesting, and, and you're explaining it, it very well for us. Is do you have a role and a duty to educate the market? Do you feel, and do you have to go and educate investors to be interested in you, or or do you think that they get it already? Yeah, I remember a politician some years ago: education, education, education. And, and it is because it is a new environment and it's not particularly understood. So um, we get a lot of confusion between the different sorts of HAP, different sorts of high altitude platform, whether they're solar or dirigible or balloon or rigid aircraft like us, uh, and what the different capabilities are. There's an assumption that all are the same, but all cars are not the same. So why would you assume that all HAPs are going to be the same? The thing that we spoke about earlier, which was the, the satellite thing, that it's a very different thing from a satellite. Just because it's not on the ground does not mean it's all the same. So there is a lot of education to do. And in fact, um, one, of the, one of the most open to education is the government. So we get, we get calls from the government, please can you explain this technology to us so that we can make sure that we include it correctly in various roadmaps or opportunities. I mean, it's fascinating the the challenge of the company because you're you've got the hydrogen side, you've got the aircraft construction and and engineering, you've got the scheduling software, you've got the telecoms. I mean, that's a diverse set of skills that you need to be hiring for. Uh, yes, it is a diverse set of skills that we need to be hiring for. And at the moment, uh, in fact, let's get onto the business journey. We are at the moment raising Series B funding. The, the interesting thing, I listen to a lot of your podcasts and it's so cool that, that when people talk about their funding journeys, that we're just the same as that, but the scale is slightly different. So Series A, which got the whole, the engineering done, which allows me to talk about this now. All of this has been engineered. It's all been, been designed and done. It's, it's kind of ready to roll. Series A was uh, put in by Deutsche Telekom, a single investor, put in Series A at the cool tune of £70 million. We're now at Series B. So that, that has allowed us to do the engineering, which is not cheap. When you're in telecoms and aerospace, both of those are very expensive environments to exist in. Combine the two, as you've just done there, James, with all those different moving parts. It's, you know, it's a pretty penny to get this engineering done and, and some dead ends as well. And dead ends are expensive in, in those environments too. You, you plan not to have them, but of course, you know, it happens. Series B is uh, a rather more challenging 130 million, which we're looking to close soon. And what that'll allow us to do is to build an aircraft and fly an aircraft with hydrogen and with the antenna. And that's our, that's our next challenge. Um, and to do that, we're going to be hiring a lot of interesting people in lots of different spheres. You know, yeah. this is not a, a one technology uh, solution. This is a multi-tech solution that is all brought together into, a, into an, a big engineering business, if you like. Right, let's take a quick break from our conversation with Neil to cover some highlights from this week's business news. But first, how's your week been, Faye? 
It's been really good. Um, I, one of the things I did this week was I am one of the mentors on the Impulse programme at the Maxwell Centre. And so they had a whole morning of me, which they seemed to enjoy. So first of all, I did a session on marketing planning with them. Yeah. But I give some really good demonstrations of how to do it well and how not to do it well. So I never give them the slides afterwards because I can't be held accountable for what I say in those matters. And then the second session I do with them is a how to network. Okay. Because a lot of these people that are on the program, they're the researchers and mm. they're people that have not necessarily, they're not like us that are seasoned, go out there and talk to anyone. So just giving them a few pointers as to what to do. And it was it was really good. And, you know, the really interesting thing is uh, it's a huge cohort this year. There's 48 of them from all over the UK and internationally. Oh, wow. Um, and they're all doing really interesting things. So I'm hoping that it'll be a future River Lane or Eshion Technologies, you know, those types of companies that have come out of the programme. So that was really interesting. What about you? Uh, yeah, my week's been busy. A lot of planning for next week, you know, Cambridge Tech Week. So suddenly I seem to be involved in lots of things, which is exciting. So I'm interviewing Joe Parry from Cambridge Intelligence on Wednesday at the conference. We've obviously got our live recording on Wednesday evening, which is getting closer and more scarier Yay! by the day. No, it's not. <laughs> and then uh, on the Thursday morning, we're doing a breakfast event with Bewhurst, who have got some new data, which looks at the impact of Cambridge Tech. And then there's a panel discussion around that afterwards as well. So yeah, lots going on. And I'm also looking to the weekend next week, going to Brighton for a music festival. So really looking for that. That's nice. That's very good. Well, yeah, I'm much the same. So Cambridge Tech Week, we've got... Crayfish are announcing something around intellectual property on the Tuesday. Infosens are presenting. So we've been prepping for all of those types of client activities as well. And then I've also got two other events going on. We've got the Cambridgeshire Chamber of Commerce event on how do businesses actually use technology. So that's on on the Wednesday. And then the Thursday, there's a roundtable with KO Data and ERM and Cambridge Clean Tech. So, yeah, it's going to be a, actually, there's basically no actual work that's going to get done next week, right? It's going to be a long week. Yeah. Shout out to Rachel from Cambridge Wireless. Oh, absolutely. But so much time and effort into that. So, congrats. So, let's get back into the news then. And actually, it now seems like ARM is getting as many mentions as the University of Cambridge in the news slot. This week, there are two important updates. First, ARM of confidentially submitted a proposal for Nasdaq IPO to the US Securities and Exchange Commission but have left an open date of the proposed float. In a statement, Arm say the size and price range for the proposed offering have yet to be determined. The initial public offering is subject to market and other conditions and the completion of the SEC's review process. Yeah, there's certainly been clear signs that an IPO raising billions of dollars is edging ever closer. It could actually be the blockbuster of the year in fundraising terms, despite the flaky state of markets at present. Arm CEO Rene Haas, who has propelled Arm to fresh heights, has now been recommended by SoftBank for a board role with the company. And it seems that Arm is supplementing its laser-focused engineering effort at its Cambridge HQ by recruiting massively for a new engineering centre in the UK's other red-hot tech centre, Bristol. And secondly, also this week, Arm has invested in a huge 90 million euro first closed Series A round for a French company called Cyperl, who are building energy efficient HPC microprocessor for Exascale 2 supercomputers. 
and that's just the first close at 90 million euros. Backers also include the European Innovation Council, of which Cambridge serial entrepreneur and ARM co-founder Dr Herman Hauser is a board member. And also, which is kind of interesting, James, certainly the UK, but hopefully Cambridge, is also on the radar as a future location for Cypel on this side of the channel. CEO Philip Notton told Business Weekly, we will land in Cambridge or Bristol sooner or later. So that kind of links back to the earlier story, doesn't it? Well, that sounds really exciting. And in other news, Cambridgeshire Graphene Technology Pathfinder Paragraph, which is expanding fast on both sides of the Atlantic, has strengthened still further with a key acquisition. Graphene biosensor market pioneer Cardia Bio in San Diego. So no figures have been disclosed for that deal, but it's set to hold massive positive implications. And the move will accelerate the mass production of next generation of devices that will deliver real-time analysis in point-of-need tests in the agri-tech, healthcare and environmental monitoring spaces. Now let's return to the conversation with Neil. We normally start our episodes by asking you to introduce yourself and get your background, but I thought for this one, it because it's different and so multifaceted, I think it, it's better to understand the product and the proposition. So now I'll ask you, you know, how did you end up here? What was your, what's your background? Right. Well, so I'm I'm kind of a Rev2 kind of guy. So what I mean by that is that typically when we listen to these podcasts, you'll have a founder who had an idea and then raised a bit of money and then grew his idea and he's still CEO today and hired some people. This environment is such a challenging prospect. It's a, it's a different way of doing it. So those those people did create the business. I'm part of the next lot of people. So I'm an industry lifer. I'm, I'm probably a little bit older than than some of the other founders that you have on here. I've done 30 years in industry, mostly in aerospace and electronics, and so have all the, the other folks in the company too. So Kevin, the chief engineer, he's he's a lifer in UAV systems. Uh, Richard, the CEO, he used to be CEO of National Air Traffic Systems in the UK, Nats. Uh, the, the CFO is also a lifer and has run businesses. So we've we've come to this as... I don't want to say career ends, but we built our apprenticeships out there in in industry and then come to this program because when you're dealing with huge aerospace programs, aerospace companies, aerospace engine manufacturers, telecom systems, telecom providers, that that kind of experience really helps. Yeah, I mean, we're not talking about a software as a service startup here, are we, where you can iterate as you go and experiment with things. You've got no margin for error, have you? Uh, you can't get it wrong, right? And that's the whole thing about aerospace and the certification path is very is very true. Aircraft accidents are exceedingly rare. They make big news. It's like a thatched house being on fire. Everybody wants to watch it. They make really big news but they're vanishingly rare compared to the amount of air traffic that's in the sky today. And the reason for that is because of those bodies, CAA, FAA, EASA, who certify everything that flies above you and with you in it. And you should be, we are all very grateful that that is the case. And so safety is vital to this program. And we're building that in by bringing that experience to bear on the project. So as well as the safety considerations and the fact that you you know you can't experiment with this the fact that 
an executive team of seasoned industry experts have, have come on board, A, shows, I guess, your belief in the idea, but secondly, gives a, a kind of very impressive lineup of executives when you're going in to look, seek partnerships or to pitch. That's a really good point, actually, James. Yeah. And, and thanks for calling me a seasoned executive. <laughs> and an expert as well. Three <laughs> yeah. compliments in one sentence yeah. there. Yeah, that's a that's a really good point. So you can't bring together a big telecom and aerospace program without some really heavyweight partners. And our Rolodex is full of the names and addresses of those heavyweight partners who are able to manufacture airplanes, bits of airplanes, do engineering on airplanes, do engineering in telecoms. And so we are able to show some presence and the fact that we've got that industry experience that we know the business knows what it's doing and that we are worth working with. So what's next for you? You've talked about you've got this funding round, um, which is no small challenge, I'm sure, and then hiring. Are they your two focus areas? That's right. Build a plane. Build a plane. Technology like this is you can't demonstrate it, right? So if you talk about soft tech, you can have an MVP, you can... You can do a, a pilot, you can entice a few customers, give out some freebies, you can do that. You can't do that with a stratospheric aircraft. You can't have a bit of one. Yeah. You've got one or you don't, and we, we don't have one right now. We have a design for one that needs to be fully designed out and built and then flown. And that's, that's large price tickets, and that's our next challenge. That's what we're going to do uh, from here in Cambridge. And ultimately, the next after that, your next question phase, then what's after that? So we build, we build the first aircraft, we start the path to certification with that aircraft and towards manufacturing. And then ultimately, we'll be churning these out of a, a factory in the UK somewhere, It'll be the first certified aircraft to come out of a UK factory for many years, and that we'll be building those for shipping around the world. Super exciting for you, isn't it? It's you, you groundbreaking, sky breaking. I'm trying to think. Yeah, of not it. groundbreaking. No, it's not groundbreaking. No, oh god, the no. Of that. Oh, should we cut that bit? Just joking. But it's. I mean, this is just such a well, a fascinating, but b just a great example of just the talent and the diversity of ideas in Cambridge. I mean, yeah. very different to the stuff we've covered before. Yeah, and also just before we started recording, you were saying you haven't actually been in Cambridge personally for that long. No, no, I, I, I came to join this company as part of that Rev2 cohort. I'm originally from the Midlands, which is a very brilliant melting pot of manufacturing and engineering and all of that stuff. And then here is this whole brilliant melting pot of this startup culture of funding and seed and angels and all. And it's just a completely, completely brilliant eye-opener, really good. And I have to say, the podcast has really helped me get into that environment as well. But this, this is a really, really good place to be. In, in fact, as any founders and bunch of uh, entrepreneurs do, we think about, should we move? You know, aerospace is typically Bristol, Midlands, yeah. Northwest, and telcos is M3, M4 corridor. Should we move away from Cambridge and go somewhere else? And at the moment, no, this is a great place for us because it's got that whole vibe going on. That's great news. We're pleased to hear it and you're very welcome. <laughs> Are you taking credit for Cambridge now? Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, thanks for that, James. Anyway, don't forget there's still time, as James said earlier on, to join us for the live recording on next week's episode. It's taking place at the Bradfield Centre on Wednesday at 5.30. Go to bit.ly forward slash live camp tech 
pod to register or you can find it on social media. Otherwise, tune in to hear the results of our first foray into public recording on next week's show. Today's show was produced by Carl Homer of Cambridge TV and supported by our media partner, Business Weekly. The Cambridge Tech Podcast is available on all major podcast platforms and on cambridgetechpodcast.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please give it a five-star review. It will really help others discover the show. 